Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Ben Hall. On the show this week, we will be discussing NATO and its renewed commitment to collective defence. Defence ministers from the Atlantic Alliance's 28 members are meeting in Brussels to discuss the reinvigoration of the alliance in the face of Russian aggression in Eastern Europe. The US is to make the biggest reinforcement of its forces in Eastern Europe since the fall of the Soviet Union in the form of heavy weaponry stationed in the bloc's eastern members and a beefed-up contribution to NATO's rapid reaction force. NATO, it seems, is back in business, but at the same time it is finding it hard to calibrate a response to an incipient Russian threat that reassures its most vulnerable members but does not provoke Russia into ever greater chest-beating or even aggression. Joining me here to discuss the latest developments are Jeff Dyer, our US diplomatic correspondent, who is travelling to Europe with uh, US Defence Secretary Ashton Carter, and Sam Jones, our security and defence editor. Sam, can I start with you? How serious should we take this Russian threat? Sure, we know that Moscow annexed Crimea and it's clearly been involved directly in eastern Ukraine in the fighting there and it's obviously backing the pro-Russian rebels even if it denies its direct intervention but should we take its broader threat to eastern Europe seriously? I think that probably depends on who you are in NATO. Certainly a lot of the alliance's Eastern European member states take it very seriously. And so if you just look actually at the defence spending figures which NATO released yesterday, the map kind of shows pretty starkly who is significantly increasing their budgets in lots of the Baltic states as sort of, you know, double-digit increases to defence spending in the last year, and then that sort of falls away the further you get from Russia. Whether all of this is sabre-rattling or whether there really is something more to it, I think actually remains to be seen. And the alliance itself, even at the sort of top level, even when you're talking to some of the big players in it, don't really yet have a handle on how exactly they're characterising this new relationship with Russia. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, said last week that this wasn't a new Cold War, but neither was this the partnership that NATO and Russia had had for the past 20 years. So there's not yet that kind of pithy phrase that sums up the relationship with Russia. There clearly is a lot of concern about what Russia's doing, its aggression, its activities. And it's important also to note that this isn't just about the kind of kinetic security, the idea of Russia physically invading a Baltic state or grabbing territory, but that there's a broader picture about Russian aggression, which is sort of cyber attacks, increased hostility, economic bullying. I mean, some of the Baltic states have been subject to all kinds of economic pressures. Obviously, Europe is now familiar with Russia using its energy resources as a weapon when it wants to. And there's a sort of broader sense that Russia is definitely turning away from cooperation in Europe. That need not necessarily mean war, but it certainly doesn't mean friendship either. And Jeff, how seriously is the US taking it? And uh, what's it doing about it? I think they're taking it very seriously for all the reasons that Sam outlined. I mean, the way that most people would frame it would be to say, even in Ukraine, where there is a semi-hot conflict going on, no one quite knows what Vladimir Putin's plans are. So they can't be too sure that any of the Baltic states or Poland are under any real direct threat. 
But the statement is made, the rhetoric is made about protecting Russian populations in other countries have given people enough pause for thought to think that it is at least possible that some of these countries could come under threat or some sort of attack or intimidation by Russia in the years ahead. So what you're seeing from the U.S. is a slow but sure end of the dramatic reversal of U.S. presence in Europe that you saw in the couple of decades after the end of the Cold War. In the early 90s, the U.S. had over 300,000 troops in the continent. Now that's down to about 65,000. And the sorts of announcements we've seen in the last few days from Defence Secretary Ashton Carter are the beginning of turning back that trend of a steady sort of increase of U.S. presence and military assets in Europe, but specifically in bits of Eastern Europe that have never really been there before. So you've seen a couple of things. You've seen, as you mentioned, the U.S. now has announced it's going to place tanks and various other types of weapons along Eastern Europe and the Baltic countries in Poland, Bulgaria, Romania. Not yet putting in troops, but that's uh, maybe a first step towards potentially having semi-permanent or even permanent bases of troops in some of those countries. And then you're also seeing the U.S. announcing the kind of capabilities it's going to make available to the new NATO very rapid reaction force. They're going to have maybe special operations forces attached to it. The U.S. will provide the kind of artillery, so fighter jets and bombers and ships that can send missiles when needed and other various types of logistical support. So really putting a, a very kind of deliberate and, and you know, decisive kind of U.S. military backing to this rapid reaction force, which is going to be largely made up by European ground troops. President Vladimir Putin has sort of upped the ante in recent days by talking about the possibility of increasing the number of nuclear-capable Russian missiles in the region. How does the U.S. intend to respond to that threat? I mean, the immediate response has been to call him out for what the U.S. sees as very irresponsible, loose talk about nuclear weapons. What you're starting to see, I think, at this meeting is a new discussion amongst NATO countries and within the U.S. about nuclear posture in Europe and precisely how they would need to respond to certain types of Russian aggressions. And so NATO is going to have to go back to the drawing board and start to rethink its own plan, its own deterrence, its own doctrine. And again, at the very least, what you will see is an end to the decline, the lack of interest in nuclear weapons that you've seen for the last couple of decades. It's going to be much more attention, potentially much more resources put into it from the U.S. and by NATO countries. Jeff, only a few weeks ago, John Kerry made a surprise visit to Russia to see President Vladimir Putin that sparked lots of speculation that Washington was seeking sort of detente with Moscow. Was there much to that? And to what extent are we seeing sort of good cop, bad cop going on in top US officials? Well, what the US said at the time was that they very much pushed back against this idea that there was some kind of grand bargain being cooked up with the Russians. Essentially, what they said was, when it comes to Ukraine policy, Vladimir Putin's the only person in Russia who counts. Some of these other foreign policy issues like Iran and Syria, John Kerry can work through the foreign minister, bureaucratic channels will work. But on Ukraine, the only person who is really making decisions is Putin, and so you need to talk to him. So that's why Kerry went and had that visit, because they felt they really needed to have a direct channel with him, at least to try and understand a bit of his thinking. That's what they said at the time, and since then there's been absolutely no real follow-through in any sense that we're aware of. So I think general conclusion is that that really all there was to it. It was just an attempt to at least open some sort of channel with the Russians to try and get some kind of clarity on their thinking. The striking thing about listening to Ashton Carter, who's been traveling Europe for the last three days, has been just how deeply skeptical he has sounded about Russia. The tone he said is very much one of Putin is going to be in power for a long time. Uh, we're going to be stuck in this kind of standoff with Russia for a very long time as well. And so we need to dig in and we need to prepare. There's very little optimism. It's been a very kind of heavy message that the U.S. has got to really start reorienting itself, its policy in, in Europe, and really start digging in for a long-term standoff.
Sam, you have to ask, how stiff is the resolve of NATO's members really to stand up to Russia? As you mentioned, defence spending is falling in a number of states, or at least they're struggling to meet the 2% of GDP target. And let's face it, some are very against the idea of even fairly limited economic sanctions against Russia. So how do you assess the sort of state of the alliance's readiness to really stand firm? Well, there's sort of two elements to it. I mean, on the NATO military level, there's the defence spending debate, which you sort of rightly highlight, and that is still a source of tension. But actually, when it comes to the sort of implementation of the measures which were agreed at the Wales summit last September, and those include this new very high readiness task force capable of deploying within 48 hours, and a whole range of other packages to support that, NATO is actually, I think probably moved a lot faster than many would have thought several months ago. And in terms of what is going on in Europe, in terms of the pre-positioning of materiel, the opening of six new logistical forward headquarters in Eastern European states, things like new powers being granted to Sakur, NATO's top military commander here, those kind of things six months ago seemed you know, very bold and perhaps they were going to take a long time to put into action. But in actual fact, it's all happened very quickly. And now NATO is even talking about what next. The Poles in particular have been pushing for a more hard line. Lots of NATO states are sort of saying, well, we've done everything that was agreed in the NATO-Wales summit, the biannual meeting of the alliance. And now we need to consider more because actually Russia hasn't stepped back from its position. So how do we take things further? Obviously, there are limitations. So the high readiness task force depends on European member states being able to contribute a lot of troops. If defence budgets continue to shrink in Europe, that's going to become harder and harder to do. There is a lot of slack still. NATO as a whole spends a vast amount more money on defence than Russia does. And I think that goes back to this nuclear question, actually, which is one of the reasons why Russia has become so much more outspoken about its nuclear posture is precisely because that it can't compete with NATO on conventional terms. And the nuclear issue is really a sort of trump card that Russia has and a very strong one to play and one that sort of men is NATO states. But ultimately, for NATO itself, it's also an issue of reassurance within the alliance. Perhaps one of Russia's main vectors of attack, if you like, is to threaten NATO and then watch NATO split itself apart as some NATO states argue about whether they should or shouldn't be responding to Russian aggression. That's sort of been avoided until now. But if Russia continues along its current course, and as the issue of economic sanctions and the relief of them becomes prominent again, then maybe that will raise its head once more. Okay, that's it for this week. My thanks to Jeff Dyer and Sam Jones. World Weekly is produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. 
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.